What do you think fathers should do less of? Talk. What do you think fathers should do more of? Being quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome back to the Unforgiving Sixty. I'm Ben Pronk. I'm Tim Curtis. That is correct. And <laughs> <laughs> thanks for thanks for your positive reinforcement on who I am. Well, no one knows who you are, and I think it's good Intimous. to uh, yeah. But someone who is not correct. Our guest this week is we're extremely fortunate to have. Um, this is a human being who has been very influential in both your and my lives, and we're going to talk a lot about how he's touched us um, in terms of our development and our current role as struggling parents, and clearly not just us. Four million households around the world have his books. We are talking about Steve Bidoff, who is our guest this week. Steve, I would wager, needs no introduction to almost all of our listeners, particularly within Australia. Having said that, we're going to give him an introduction. <laughs> the introduction he doesn't need. <laughs> the introduction he Sorry, doesn't Steve, need. We know you didn't need an introduction, but you're getting one. We're anyway. going to do one anyway. But no, Steve is extremely famous as a parenting expert. He has authored multiple books in his 30-plus year career um, as a psychologist and um, a relationship and parenting guru. Um Amongst his many accolades, uh, he was voted Australian Father of the Year back in 2000 and has been appointed the adjunct professor in the School of Psychology and Counselling um, in Ken Miller Institute in Melbourne. He resides in Tasmania and that's where we're conducting this um, video link with him from. But Tim, pretty influential for you as well, isn't he, Ben? Yep, I've spoken about it before. Reading Manhood definitely changed my life. I uh, hope to explore that a little bit with him on this episode, Ben. Yeah, and I think for me, as recently as as a um, the podcast he did with Andrew Lee, a mutual friend of ours and a, a fantastic podcaster and federal member of parliament, um, really sparked a couple of things that we've implemented um, with our kids that have, have been really successful. So we'll explore those as well both raising boys and raising girls. Let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Ben Pronk and I'm joined, as always, by Tim Curtis. G'day, Ben. And Tim, we have a really special guest this week. Mm -hmm. Um. I think I'm not unusual in, which I probably am. <laughs> You're highly unusual, yes. I'm, I, it's not uncommon for people my age to have entered manhood um, at about the same time that Steve Biddulph's work started coming out. Mm. So I feel like I've made that transition personally 
under his tutelage. And now as we try to raise our own children, I certainly treat his work as a, as a Bible. And so we're absolutely delighted to have Steve Bidolf joining us today. Steve, how are you? Hi there, I'm fine. Thank you very much. I've been just out um, putting up fence posts in the paddock behind my house, so I'm I'm a little kind of sleepy, but but um, but really happy to be talking to you. Yes, thanks for having me on your podcast. And of course, paddock house Tasmania. Yes. Yeah. So we're we're joining you by Skype, and we we really appreciate you dialing in now, Steve. You need no introduction. Um, Your books have been translated into 31 different languages. I didn't even know there were that many. Um, I understand they find themselves into over 4 million homes around the world. You are globally renowned as a parenting expert. Um, But one of the things that I found really interesting when I was listening to our mutual friend, Andrew Lee's recent conversation with you, his podcast, The Good Life, was that you started all of this um, because you wanted to to learn more about how humans interact for your own um, interest. Is that correct? Look, it's a combination of things. Yes, I was um, I was a, a, when I was a young guy, I had a um, a brain problem or a, um, a neurological problem that everyone's heard about these days. But when I was a kid, nobody knew about it. And it's called Asperger's syndrome. And so I um, I realised that um, as I I didn't really get a diagnosis about that till I was in my in my fifties. But so as a young man, I I, I was fine when I was a little boy, just running around and and doing little boy things. Um, But as a teenager, it's a really big deal because um, adolescence is all about um, relating to people. And and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do conversation. And I could see people having a lot of fun in this doing this thing called conversation. And I really wanted to join in. And so I'd I'd have a go. And of course, when you're a teenager, you, re- you really want to be able to talk to girls. And I could just couldn't make it work. And so I tried a few different um, kind of career ideas. But I, in the end, I thought, look, psychology. That I know what that is. That's about talking to girls. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that's going to help me. And so I signed up on that basis and um, it wasn't quite as smooth going as, as I'd hoped, but in the end it, it did. You, you learn that um, conversation is like a game of table tennis and, um, or, or, you know, you, you hit it and the person hits it back to you and it's mm. a to and fro thing. And, um, and I hadn't known that. And people have these things on their faces called emotions and, if you if you watch their faces, you can tell whether they're bored or whether they're getting angry. And 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 so once you learn the rules and that the, there are actual guidelines for relating to human beings, which most people don't need to learn, you guys wouldn't need to learn. It just comes naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, then what happens is is that I suddenly sort of found that I could do it, and then that I could be of help to other people, and and so that. And then I kind of went past normal. And so I can have an audience of a thousand people and pretty much know where everyone in the room is at. And so I kind of skipped normal and, <laughs> and, and the, the wound turned to gold in, in a way. And so, um, so I, was, I was very lucky. But also I, I married Sharon, who is, is a very warm-hearted woman. And, and I think that you find people who are on the autism spectrum when they if, if they find someone who's very very good-hearted they make a good team 
Mm. And so, so that we've been a team for four, about 45 years now, and, and all of the books that you were so kindly referring to have got a, um, a woman's energy running through them as, as well as, as mine. Yeah, so that's the brief background of my, my troubled childhood, yeah. <laughs> but I, I find it interesting that, that you refer to, like, um, the interaction would come naturally to, to someone like Tim and I, but I don't think it does. And I think particularly in the parenting side of things that, um, you know, you've, you've studied these things and I think you reflected with Andrew that all of a sudden you found that other people were really interested in it because we don't have a clue what we're doing regardless of being on the spectrum or not. Well, yes, and I think that's especially true for guys, uh, mm. Ben. Um, and that became my interest. Uh, what what happened was I got I got offered a job in a clinic in Launceston that was just starting out, and and my my boss was was a psychiatrist, and he had this new idea, and this was the first time in our part of Australia this had happened, which is, he said, if someone's wanting to get a kid sorted out because they're having problems with the law or problems at school or something, they have to bring their family. Mm. And so it was the first family therapy clinic. And, and this was a radical thing that, that you don't just take your kid to the psychologist, like you take your car to the garage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have to show up as well. And so we'd have the whole family in the room. We'd have a very reluctant dad and a, and a, a very anxious mom and a, and a handful of kids. And the, the learning from that was amazing because what I first of all learned was that these parents were fantastic. I, you, know, you used the word expert in your introduction, and, and but it's never been my approach because mm. what, I, what I realized was, you know, I'm exhausted after an hour with this family. Mm -hmm. um, they go home and keep doing it 24-7, you know, <laughs> and, and these are wonderful people. They're so patient and they're, and they're better human beings than I am, you know, a young, nothing, no worse joke really than a, a 24-year-old psychologist trying to help other people. That's just so <laughs> laughable. But at least I thought these are fantastic human beings. Um, I look up to them, but they are having trouble. And so how how can I help? And and the main message that we got was that this is Launceston, which was a blue-collar mill yep. town. Um, people who loved their kids, but they were caught in very negative patterns with them. Yep. Always, um, you know, yelling and hitting and things going down, uh, uh, sort of getting worse. And so the way we could help was just to help people get a more positive approach to raising the kids. That it's all right to be affectionate. Mm. That dads can dads don't have to be a terrifying, scary figure. And and gradually, this is a very roundabout. I apologise, but gradually no, the um, the focus on the guys came because I thought. Oh, look, the dads are really struggling and yeah. they don't have the language. They don't have, they all, they, they weren't raised, they, you know, they were raised with fists and, and, mm. and, and verbal abuse. Um, and so I realized that if in one lifetime, if I could change things for men, um, that would be a really timely intervention. And that became the focus of my life. And we're very keen to talk about both raising boys and raising girls to to coin titles from from your um from your pen. But maybe we start with boys, and maybe we start with the end product. Um, mm. Tim and I are both from a, a military background. In fact, we're both military children as well. So there's been that sort of uh, that kind of role model in our lives 
throughout. Um, but what makes a good man? You know, because often that 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 military style role model doesn't um, necessarily lend itself to having room for the emotion and the the softer side. But I'm really interested in your views on what is a good man. Oh, that's such a good place to start, Ben. And so let me. I, I can. I've. I'll, I'll tell you how we arrived at this. Um, I had a room full of 200 women, um, 200 mums, and, um, and we'd been together for half a day, and so we were pretty, pretty chilled and pretty settled in. And I started the afternoon, I said, I want you to describe a perfect man for me. And after a certain number of ribald kind of comments, um, <laughs> <laughs> we put it on the board. And, and so you know what they would say. They'd say, you know, gentle and kind and reliable and and um but and sort of trustworthy and mm. and good sense of humor and things and we just we designed you know had about 100 words for the ideal man but every word fell into one of two categories and the two categories were backbone and heart and so backbone means if he, he's he's good he's true to his word he shows up when he says he will. He keeps his promises. You can count on him. You feel safe with him. Those are the backbone qualities. And the heart qualities are gentle and kind and funny and, and caring to the kids. And, and the thing is that you have to have both. If there are people listening to the program, they'll be able to think of men who've got loads of backbone but no heart. And they're just... Um, you, might, you might put them in charge. Of, you might have, that, have them to be your accountant. Um, <laughs> Oh, you, you know, um, or maybe your general, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure mm. in, in the military settings, but but um, and also there are guys who've got lots of heart but no backbone, and so so they you know they won't show up when they said they show up, and they'll you know they won't stick around when the kids get difficult, and so um, you have to have both. And so if you're raising a boy, I think you look at you know, say the sort of age that you guys have got, quite quite young kids. Um, you can say he's going, he's going well on the backbone side, um, but he he needs a bit of work on the heart, and and I think that was actually true of men in the twentieth century, right down the line, you know, and you'd see this in the military the guys you you could count on they would they would give their life if if need be that's how much backbone they had, um, but at the in the living room at home, at the kitchen table, um, minding the kids while mum's sick in hospital, um, they were scary and they couldn't show their affection. And so the, their kids grew up, and I'd be so interested in your experience of military dads, the kids grew up never quite sure whether they were loved or not. Um, does that make sense to you? It does. And I don't know how many times you might have been told that your books changed someone's life, but manhood changed my life and it changed my relationship with my father. My father was uh, 35 years in the army. He got out as a one-star general and it probably would have been uh, maybe mid to late 90s. I'd read the book and um, in the book you talk about the importance of the relationship between boys of all generations. And I think you talk about the importance of physical contact 
And nearly as a social experiment, but also because I absolutely loved my father, when I was leaving his little avocado farm in southeast Queensland, I reached out and gave him a hug. Now, I've talked about this on the program before, and Ben knows it. My father was not used to being hugged as a one-star oh. general. And he stood there kind of stiff as a board for a second, and then he hugged me back. And that moment, Steve, profoundly changed our relationship. Oh. But not just that, it changed my relationship with my brother, my brother's relationship with my father, and now my son's relationship with both me, his uncle, and his grandfather. So I'm, mm. I'm super keen to, to hear perhaps what are the best stories that you might have heard um, from men who have read Manhood or some of your other work, um, and maybe the things that continue to inspire you to research and write. Well, I, yeah, I don't think I could match that story. That was that was really wonderful, Tim. And and and, um, and I'm sure there was more to it than the hug, but everything that it represented as well, and how it mm. rippled through your generations. Good, good on you, and good on your dad as well. And but that yes, that is the kind of thing that I hear. Is I, my my favourite was a, a man who wrote to me. He'd he'd grown up in a board gone to boarding school in england from the age of six mm. and when he finished school he he couldn't stand his father he didn't even say goodbye to him he he, he grabbed a rucksack and came to australia and then he trained as a doctor and became a medical specialist in this country did really well um but he was having a bunch of problems in his life sort of kind of stress problems from his work and and then he read manhood and he thought, you know, I haven't spoken to my dad. I haven't hugged him. I haven't, hadn't, he was planning to never see him again. It was a, mm. it was a hate relationship. But something in, in his gut somewhere said, now this, maybe this is the key to something. This isn't right. It isn't right. And he went back to England, clutching his copy of that book. He, he got on a plane and he and he had to trace his dad. He couldn't just, you know, didn't know where he was. He had to find his father. His father was in hospital dying of cancer. And and as I said, this man was, a, he, this was all in a letter that he wrote to me. And he said he he got his, he, his, he realised he talked to the other specialists, found his dad really only had a few weeks to live. Mm. Got him out of the hospital, rented a flat, took him to the flat and cared for him for the rest of, of his life. And they, I imagine, had conversations. He sees just all he wrote was, you know, I'm crying as I'm writing this mm. letter. Mm. You know, thank you for giving me back my father. Um, and so I can imagine that it was a, a forgiveness journey that they talked mm. about, you know, why did you send me to boarding school? What was it, what was going on, you know, when mm. we were kids? And and it's and we always say this to men who capture this idea and listening men listening to this podcast that ideally you don't race in and say how come you were such a bastard when i was a kid <laughs> you know that's they, they they're not a, they're not unaware of their failings yeah, don't argue um, with that no exactly exactly yeah. uh, ben and but but the safe way to do it and it's in the book is is to say look dad i I was a kid back then and I, I didn't really know the whole picture and I'd like to know your story. Mm. I'd like to know what it was like for you when you were a kid and what was it like when we were born? And, um, and so as Robert Bly, who's a wonderful writer about this stuff, he said that the average man of that generation goes to his grave feeling that he's failed as a human being mm. and that is so um, 
so, so kind of uh, it just knocks you off, yeah. knocks your socks off, and 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 so the gift that you give to them by wanting to know their story, wanting to know the reasons and the, what was going on for them, and so that you don't just blanketly say I forgive you, but you come to a place where you do, if in your heart you can feel the forgiveness that they really were doing their best. Um, it was a nightmare. The 20th century was a nightmare for men. Mm. Uh, it was one war after another. Mm. And so, um, yeah, and so men who are listening to this, that, that, that's, you know, it's not just a one Hollywood conversation. It's, uh, you know, you talk and you ask and you inquire. You get them, get them away from your mum. Get them, you know, go for a long drive, go for a camping trip because they always have, those old couples have their kind of protection rackets that they run with each other. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and and you he he won't be able to be fully himself around around your mum, and create the opportunity. And as as you said, Tim, it, it's the interesting thing how is it how it echoes. It starts to change how you feel with your kids. I, yeah, yeah it, um, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, my my boy is now nineteen years old. He will openly and publicly tell me he loves me and his grandfather and I think that's really special I don't think at 19 years old I would have been doing anything like that mm. and the and the echo I like that word because the one thing that it additionally did is it started me hugging my mates even this mate in the studio with me and uh, mm. we've got one of my Not mates sitting in, character yeah. by any means yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sitting in the, in the background as well and I've yet to have any of my mates push me away when I go in to hug them. And I think that's a real tell. Mm. Mm. Yes, it's like the whole generation is thawing out. Mm. And, um, and it's so, so reassuring that, that we really have, if I look at, 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 at my son and his generation, he's in his, in his early 30s, it's kind of a, they're just, and also the way they relate to women as well. They're, they're just like, they're good mates. They have friends in all sorts of um different ages and stages and, and and so i think it's they're going to have far better mental health than we did and it's 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 a great change mm. and steve i hope i haven't misquoted you when i when i say this but um i believe that you said if your father is dead then you might have to dig him up and i understand what you meant by that is write a letter to him as if he were alive visit significant places in his life, have a conversation with him. Could you perhaps talk about the importance of that connection, even if your father is missing? Yes, sure. Now, that'll be, for, for many men listening, that'll be the, the, there'll be some sadness in hearing this conversation because it's, in a sense, it feels like it's, it's too late and, um, and they wish that they were still around to talk to. But, but for, from the sake of your own healing, it's never too late. Um, now, there's an expression which is called unfinished business and it's that thing when when someone's gone and there's things you meant to say or would have wanted to, to have said and what we know as, as as therapists with people is the unfinished business will be of two kinds it'll be resentments or appreciations it's often both and so you might have um, only let them know your resentments and never told them your appreciations. That was how it was with 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 my dad. Um, and because you get caught in one, you get caught in the story of you know, oh, I had a terrible dad, you know, and <laughs> and, and so you kind of blot out. I oh, accept that he did this and this and this and this. Um, or you're in that kind of you know hero dad mode where you just 
he was so amazing and everyone thought he was so amazing that you weren't allowed to think he was an asshole as well. <laughs> and, and he couldn't, yeah, I'm glad to see you nodding your, your heads to that. Mm. And, and so, so unfinished business will be one of those. And, and so maybe you want to write out, write down all the appreciations of your dad um, so that they can, you can sit with those. And, and, and that's when I did that, I was, I just cried for, for hours when mm. I did that because I just started remembering the memory is an amazing thing and I started remembering the tenderness that he had um, I once had had chicken pox or mumps or something which used to be quite severe when I was mm. a kid in the 50s and in the middle of the night feeling just you know so you know a little boy just feeling so feverish and hurting all over and and my dad being the one who came um, and I'm probably him and mum flipped a coin or something in the <laughs> bedroom. I don't know, but but he came and they used to rub calamine lotion on you, which was like a soothing ointment that they'd rub on as cool on all of mm, your chickenpox. Mm. And because people didn't give hugs or anything, that was really lovely. And have dad sitting on my bed tending to my my wounds. And so and and I forgot I'd completely blotted that out that memory and then all of a sudden there it was and then there was other things came flooding in and so yeah so guys listening can you can do that another mm. thing is to go and find your dad's friends and mm. get, get and talk to them well, what was he really like um there's a story in the book about a this man's father being a chief of police and um and so he's but he died young in work and, and so he's his photo was on the mantelpiece in the living room, this hero dad, you know. And, um, and finally this guy went down to the police station in his late teens and, and got with the old guys who remembered his dad. And they said, oh, no, look, he was a real one for the Sheilas, you know. And, oh. and, he, you know, and he couldn't <laughs> stay away from the dogs, you know. And, and, and they just, and it was just such a relief. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, that, that, yeah exactly, Ben, that's right, yeah. Huh. It's, it's, I was nodding when you were talking about that. My brother and I lost our father a number of years ago, two or three years ago now. And um, we kind of had the opposite. Our dad was amazingly affectionate. And I, I remember we joke about it now, but we used to get really angry because if he'd had a couple of drinks, he'd, he'd, get, he'd tell us he loved us and he'd tell us he was proud of us. And of course, that made us squirm and embarrass. And dad, no, no, don't. And it wasn't until I spoke to other friends who um, told us what, their dad did once he'd had a few drinks it was at the opposite end of that spectrum yeah. that i think we've really realized how how lucky we are nobody knows what beauty is anymore because do they actually look like that or just really good at photoshop oh lord isn't that strange but at the other conversation my brother and I always have, we're both trying our best to raise children now, is how different it is, um, how different this generation of children are. And I know that must be a cliche that goes back in history forever, but I don't feel we can apply uh, the same mental models we had as kids to our kids because things have changed. Um, have, what, what are your views on sort of raising contemporary children in the age of the internet and social media and all those sorts of things? Are we talking vastly different principles or is it just a, a subtle change from what we've always had to do? Look, I think there are, again, that's a, a really thoughtful question. There are new 
um, risk factors, new hazards. Um, you know, it's really changed. Your, your child's not all that likely to to die from an infectious disease now, but mm. um, but their mental health is actually in really dreadful shape, and especially with girls. Um, but but both both boys and girls. And and the thing is that what's changed is that we've we've been cranked up in the pace of life, and and so people. Um, there's, a, there's a thing I even put it on my website as the kind of banner on my website because it's the thing I most want to get into the world is that hurry is the enemy of love, and and so that um, you can be a family where everyone really loves each other, but as the pace of life speeds up and people are being you know kids are doing after school activities, they're racing around the place. From this to that, mum and dad are, are now in the in the workforce, and they work long hours. And even people just feel like you're supposed to be busy, you're supposed to be an achiever, and have all these things that you do. Then, what happens is that the sort of the way that you know we're a big mammal, a big soft mammal, and and we take time to connect. You know, if you get home to to your family of a night time, and your wife gets home, or she's already at home. You don't just instantly merge into harmonious rhythm. Um, it's like a dance. You've got to get the dance back again. And so one of my books, we said, look, always have a drink. The minute you get home, have a drink and have some really nourishing food, some salami or cheese or something like that, something a bit solid. And sit down with your, with your wife or your partner um, and just kind of calm down. Uh, before you cook dinner, before you race off anywhere, and and don't talk too much about like who's had the worst day, because um, that's, that's that's a no win kind of situation. Um, but just kind of settle, so that you that when you do then go on about cooking tea and organising stuff with the kids, you've kind of got your rhythm back. Because if you don't get it at the start of the evening, you you won't have it for the whole night. You'll be trying to find it, you know, at 10.30 and it just won't be there. And so the hazard to today's children that you're asking about is that they can be rushed past their own life. And we, we know this thing about the brain, which is one is that we have experiences and then we digest those experiences or we integrate them in the, in the gaps. So even if you do exercise or do yoga or something, you... It's in the pauses where your body does the healing and the growing and gets mm. the benefit. Um, and if you um, see a really, you know, if you have something happens in the day, you need time to process that. And our ancestors spent all day walking along riverbanks together mm. and, they, and they had very dramatic and very traumatic things happen from time to time and then they had weeks to process it. And, um, and you know, as soldiers, that, that, um, that we, can sit, we can send people on deployment overseas, um, the, but the, we probably should only ever do that once because traumatic stress is, is a cumulative thing. And, and it's, it's, if you, maybe it takes five years to get over being someone who's been in combat. And I can see you both nodding to each other there. And so, so we shouldn't be redeploying people. And in, and in our family's life, we should have experiences where we just are simply letting things settle down. 
Um, and um, you know, we have a piece of advice for, for parents who've got a, a bunch of kids is every now and then take one kid and one parent and go off for a couple of days with that one child, um, especially the one you don't get along with. <laughs> Um, oh, <laughs> everyone's got is, one. Is there always you. one? <laughs> and, oh, and for, my, for my children, if you're listening, you know you know which one we're talking <laughs> about. 50, 50. I've got 33% chance for my kids. <laughs> yes, and, and what happens if you, you go away with that one kid and especially don't spend a lot of money on theme parks and things, just go somewhere where it's simple and you're cooking meals and you're hanging out doing stuff. What will happen is... is There'll be a blue. There'll be a big blue will blow up. And it won't be about doing the dishes. It won't be really about making a mess of the, of the kitchen. Um, it'll, what it'll, that'll have it'll start. But what it'll really be about is something that happened three months ago. Or, or you know, our family isn't fair. Or, or something else. Or something that's been going on at school that's been really upsetting them. And, and they haven't felt like there was t- anyone wanting to know about that. And so this, this idea of the you know, father-son trip or the father-daughter trip away, um, so the, if each of your kid has that maybe just once a year, once every six months, then they'll do this unpacking. Um, and, and they will, even when, you know, they know they can't have you all to themselves, you know, all year round, but they've got that memory, you know, me and dad, you know, me and dad, we're, we're really like that. Mm. and um, that they can really talk to you, you really listen. And so if you build in debriefings and, and rest days, you know, in your week there's a rest day mm. every week, then you find that mental health problems just don't happen because those natural processes of digestion are, are able to take place. If you want to be beautiful, then please take my advice. Don't try to change to be beautiful, you already are inside, oh. Now, before we switch our attention and talk about girls, um, can we talk about mothers and sons and that relationship? And Steve, I heard you talk about Celia Lashley's work, who I think was a prison warder, New Zealander. And I read her book maybe five or six years ago. And that book is the authority, I think, for mothers who have sons to read because she talks about the way that that women communicate, you know, women and, and girls and the way that boys communicate. And often mothers want to communicate to their sons in the same way as they communicate to their friends and their daughters. And sons just don't really like that. They want, you know, simple boundaries and nearly the soundbite. Um, understand the rules and convey the message. Could you perhaps talk about the relationship between mothers and sons? Yes, uh, yes, I can. And um, the the great thing about Celia, she was she was a fantastic person, and and she uh, sadly died way too too young and too too suddenly. And because she could say things as a mother that I couldn't say as a man. Um, you know, I, I, I really think there's women's business and men's business sometimes, and and I couldn't have said these things even though I was bursting to sometimes. Um, but what she, the, her, where she came from, for people who are listening, is that she was 
um, of, of Maori descent, and she was a prison. Eventually, was a prison warder, a prison, actually a prison um, superintendent. She ran a large prison. Um, now, the first thing to know about prison is that if you're a boy, you have 19 times more chance of going to prison than if you're a girl. And so, if you have, you know, I, when I do my talk, sometimes I I draw two little babies on the on the board, two identical little babies wrapped up in blankets side by side, and I say that this one on the left has got 19 times the chance of going to prison, and three times the chance of dying before they're 25, and and three times the chance of being a drug addict. And um, what's different with the kid on the left from the one on the right? And people guess all kinds of things, but they, they don't guess is that that is a male baby and the one on the right's a girl. And we, so we have this extraordinary different risk factors with boys. And, and what Celia said was the men in her prison were there because of a three-minute decision that they made wrongly. Um, and which sometimes put them in prison for the rest of their lives. You know, they killed someone, they, they crashed a car or something. And so she was very motivated to get this message out that we have to, we have to help our boys to grow up. Because, you know, as we said, with backbone and heart, the backbone means that you're accountable for your behaviour, that you think before you act. And, and her message to mums was, if I'm getting this correctly, was you have to let them grow up. Um, and that meant not making their sandwiches when they're 15. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, and if they forget their sandwiches, you don't drive in with those sandwiches to the school that's, you know, 20 k's away. <laughs> he goes, he needs to go hungry and experience that there's consequences. And so she had, she said that manhood is like a bridge and mum has to wait at the, at the, one side of the bridge and let him walk across. That's right. And yeah. th that, is that what you remember from that book too? Exactly what she said. I think you've just quoted that verbatim. Mm. And I don't know, do your wives sort of find that a, a difficult <laughs> message? Or Well, it, I mean, it is funny, and, and Tim knows this story, but um, when I listened to the – I'd not heard Celia's stuff, I'd not read her stuff, but when I listened to your interview with Andrew Lee, um, then I – phoned my wife straight away I was I was away from home at that time and I said we need to get our boy cooking dinner once a week which I think was one of the the recommendations mm -hmm. and um it's been brilliant he he loves it he steps up he coordinates we actually get a really good feed we've, we've had <laughs> an eight-year-old cooking calamari which was um yeah really good but that that whole idea of uh not overprotecting because it's a very different relationship isn't it between mums and Sons and mums and daughters. Yeah, and in the Curtis household, my boy goes, his sisters call him favourite son. Not by his name, they just call him <laughs> favourite son because I think mum is strictly, you know, walking side by side on the bridge, perhaps a little in, in advance of him, making sure he doesn't trip over anything and, oh, the mm. sandwiches are always ready. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I, I watch the relationship that they have. And they do have a very special relationship, mothers yeah. and sons, and very different to us, clearly. Um but it is it is a different relationship, yeah. Yeah, and 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 out of respect for for the women listening to this, I think that part of the reason is that they're not sure that if they back off, that we'll step up. 
And, and so the, 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 the kind of picture we have of a boy developing is that he starts off in his mum's world and, and um, they have a bond because they were, they were one body. And, but around the age of six, a boy really reorients to his dad and, and he kind of, he's hanging on to mum's hand, but he's looking at dad. Mm. And so, and, but if dad doesn't answer the call, and in the 20th century, they often didn't. They just, you know, they thought it was, you know, women's work was to raise the children. Um, but if the dad steps up, then I think the mum feels like, you know, he, he, he won't starve. Um, he, he won't fall in a hole and, and drown. Um, he'll, he'll be all right with my husband. Um, mm. Then I think the women can relax. And so, and then the, the next stage, of course, is that even dads can't do the whole thing. Because around about 14, which is, I think, is Tim, where you're getting to the age you're getting to, um, a 14-year-old boy is a remarkable animal because his, his blood levels of testosterone go up by 800%. And when I tell this to a live audience, you can see it like a wave of panic ripples back <laughs> across, the, across the order. It's like a Mexican wave of panic just ripples back. And because that's a lot of testosterone, that's the most you will ever have. And it, its effect is to make them very twitchy because, because this was the age in a hunter-gatherer society, which is not that long ago in the scale of things, when they became men. And, and we needed them to be men. We needed them to stand in front of, of buffaloes and, and mammoths and hold a sword and hold a, hold a spear. Um, and we needed to know we could count on them. That it was a matter of life and death that we had them be good men, and so in a boy of fourteen now, adulthood is still years away, um, and it's a hard, frustrating kind of thing, and and so what we find is that at this age, dads and sons have a natural, even a healthy kind of um, hostility, prickliness comes in, and because they know they, they, they don't, dad never ever has all the things you want. Mm -hmm. And so as a practical measure, a really great thing is for a dad of a teenager to get some other dads that he's a good friends with and go away with three or four dads and their teenage boys. Um, and so your son probably won't spend more than five minutes with you the whole time, but he will really tune in to the other guys. Um, and you see, I'm so, you can tell I'm so bursting with things I want to tell you here. I can oh, barely contain it all, but, <laughs> but it's what masculinity is. It's, it's not something that just, it's not just like you get hairy when you're 17. It's not born inside. Masculinity isn't born inside us. What it is, it's a river and the river flows through history and it passes from the men to the boys and, 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 and so every boy, he never ever gets the perfect dad that he would choose. Um, his dad has got some good things, but there's some other things that he needs. And so he might, he might be more artistic than you and he just wants to know what an artistic man looks like and sounds like. He might be really into looking after children or really into being things that are mechanical and, and hands-on. Um, and so he will hang around with the other dads and listen to them and get affirmation from them and praise from them. Um, and so he'll be making this bundle of masculinity 
by from all the good men that he's met and and you you've mentioned you know in 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 the military as well it's a chance you'll get you'll see men that are admirable and you say oh, that's part of that is what i want to make into my own manhood and this other part i don't want i don't like that and i won't take that in and so we construct uh, put together this bundle and and that's who we are we're a bundle of all the good people we've ever met now women are in that equation as well of course but but there's something about the chemistry of being male that we have to see it in someone who's put together the same way we are um and so but if you're having trouble with a 14 year old don't worry but do make sure that there are some men in his life and same if you're a single mum um really important there'll be single mothers listening to this mm. that we have to get this really straight um women have raised boys on their own for thousands of years and they've had them turn out really really well there's no problem with women raising boys but when i talk to the women who've raised sons and i when i'm, I'm back in law system i was 35 years ago i was a therapist here i meet people in the supermarket you know who are my clients it's and that you just have to get a it's it's the brontosaurus in the room you know you, you just have to say you know was it any use you know <laughs> <laughs> did it work <laughs> you know, i mean 24 year old psychologist you know was it any use and and but if they're a single mum, which they often they, they were um what did you do? What, you know, what did, what do you think was the key to your son turning out well? And they said, well, it was the basics, of course, that you teach any human being to be loving and, and, and reliable. But I made sure he knew what a good man looked like. And so I'm, so whether it was his um, granddad or um, the guitar teacher or even, you know, the gay man next door who was a really good bloke. I made, there were good men in his life. Uh, and I'm just, and sometimes I ask those men, I said, look, can you, you know, include my son in that fishing trip that you're going to go on? And, mm. and we can do that as, you know, you'll have, your son will have friends who don't have dads or don't have very good dads. If you're planning a trip, take, take them along too. Um, you'll have more fun with your son's friend than with your son. It's, it's a funny thing. Mm. And, and so, so we, we all have to step up to this fathering role. It's not just our own children. I know it's hard to see sometimes Because of social media and TV But the truth we fail to realise is Oh, that's not how life's meant to be now, I'm sure we're going to circle back to some more general parenting uh, questions towards the end, but we really need to talk about these little princesses in our lives, Steve. What's the difference in raising girls to raising boys? Yes, now, I'm glad you asked about girls because I was about to hang up my microphone, really, when um, about five years ago because I thought, okay, that's my job done. I was, I was the boy expert and I've done that. And, but a couple of things happened. One, I had a, I had a teenage daughter and I saw firsthand what she and her friends were going through, um, particularly her friends were going through. And, and also um, the mental health picture with girls, it used to be that girls were going great. 10, 15 years ago, girls were going very well. Um, their mental health suddenly started going over a cliff and it was anxiety, um, 
self-harm and eating disorders, but a whole range of things. But basically all of them tracked back to these girls not feeling at ease in the world and it is in their bodies. And the reasons are multiple. One of them is the speeding up of life that we talked about. Um, but another one was, was a lot to do with social media. And behind that, the marketing world and the, and the, the world of the corporate attack on, on girls because the marketing world realised that girls, because of this talent that girls have or this really good quality that they're very sensitive to social cues, they, it made them vulnerable. And, and, and this really shocked me and, and made me quite angry um, the, the, the advertisers realised if you can make a girl insecure about her looks or figure or her mm. skin or her hair, about, about fitting in, um, then you can sell her stuff. And so they specifically targeted the eight-year-old girl. Um, and the result of that is that, you know, one-third of girls today are, are, by the time they're 12, they're already dieting. And... Um, and so, so they began to, you know, just when feminism was really getting some traction and girls were, were feeling comfortable in their bodies and, and diverse and all those sorts of things, um, all of a sudden I was he hearing from, from parents saying, look, we, you know, the reason we got in touch is that, you know, late at night, I don't know, 2 a.m., something like that, we heard a strange sound in the house and like a kind of a noise. We didn't know what it was. We went we put the lights on. It was our daughter. She was lying on the bathroom floor um, in a, you know, in tears. And she'd kind of come to come to wake us up and then she didn't feel she should wake us up and she just ended up in a mess. And sobbing almost uncontrollably with anxiety. And maybe it was bullying at school that was the trigger or something that somebody said on the internet. But one in five girls in the Western world is on anxiety medication now. And, and yeah, and I got really, really angry about that. And when I do my raising boys talks, people walk out of those talks pretty, pretty cheered up and pretty full of, full of love and tenderness for boys. But when they come out of one of my raising girls talks, they're ready to smash windows because the world is really mistreating girls. And it has many facets to it. it you know, pornography is teaching boys to, to, to mistreat girls. Um, the social media world just almost was like by accident. It just created this thing of, you know, for millions of years, we never even saw a mirror. You know, we didn't have mirrors. And so you or I, Tim, could have thought we were good looking. You know, it was, it was you know, <laughs> no, no one was, no one was going to tell us otherwise. Um, Thinking, and, knowing, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, but then, then we had mirrors and mirrors are a bit of a problem. You know, you mm. get a bit neurotic if you have too many mirrors in your house. Um, you just have to stop and just check, you know, how do I, how am I looking at, um, but, but the internet, the internet is like 10 million mirrors. Um, and they don't reflect you as very well. You, you're seeing people that look amazing, um, by a very narrow standard of what amazing is supposed to look like. And, and this has really hit girls. And it's, so it's, it's like, it's just put feminism and all of its gains kind of in jeopardy. Um, and it's completely accidental. Just nobody, you know, who would have thought there'd be an internet? Mm. 
And so what that means is as parents, we have to kind of have the, the four walls of our house. Um, you don't have the, the alleyways of the world pouring into your bedroom on a big screen. And so people are getting much more careful about television. They're just not leaving television on all the time like we, we used to. Um, and they're not having uh, internet devices in bedrooms. Um, and the kids are saying, thanks, mum and dad, you know, I, I hated you when you took away my smartphone, you know, that I, but at least I'm getting a full night's sleep. And, and actually, I could never, I couldn't have given up my, my phone. But, but when, you, when we had that thing that we all put our phone on the charger at tea time, um, people, people come on Facebook and say, she's, you know, our daughter's a different girl. Since we got a, since we got a, a handle on that and we put some boundaries in our family about the amount of media that was flooding in on us, We've all been happier. And so this is a new role. It's right back to your early question, Ben. This is a new role of parents. Mm. We are supposed to be um, the boundary givers. Teenagers can't do boundaries. Their brains have a lot of trouble with that. That's our job. And even it might be our job that they hate us for two weeks. Um, that probably is a sign that you're doing a good job mm. um, because someone's got to do that. And and we we and we literally we're keeping the hyenas out of their lives. There's hyenas that are stalking our girls, and and someone's got to go and stick a, a spear through them. You you raised a point before, which is something that terrifies me um, with both a boy and a girl, and that's pornography. And this is probably one of the big things for me that when I look back at my own childhood, you know, as a 15-year-old boy, you know, you'd hear a mate would have a magazine and you'd, you'd sort of cycle two blocks and you'd, you'd see a topless girl. Whereas the proliferation, the access and the um, level of intensity of pornography that is um, that our children are exposed to is mind-blowing at a time when they're trying to get their heads around what a normal human um, relationship looks like. Um, I, I love your idea of, of loop, the boundaries, monitoring access to that sort of stuff. Any other thoughts? I mean, I'm personally very concerned about making it a taboo, so we try to talk about it. But do you have any other advice on dealing with this over-sexualization, particularly of girls? Yes, oh, we could do a whole podcast on this, but yeah. the, the, in a, it, you're on the right track there. It's a combination of, of the two things. One of them is you, is you do um, put boundaries. You, so, this, you know, so you don't have a smartphone or a computer in your, in your 10-year-old son's bedroom because he will watch it and, he, and it's designed to hook him in. And sometimes it's designed to hook him in through cartoon characters or completely innocent mm. um, avenues. They're, they're, they're interested in hooking children. Um, but the other thing is to make it something that's very much part of the conversation and to say, look, you know, you even do it, I think to little eight year olds to say, you know, there'll, there'll be kids at school who show you weird pictures of things, you know, and, and, and that's around and, and, you know, people doing sort of things to do with sex that are, that just look really weird. And, and so if, if you see that stuff, you know, don't worry, um, but let us, let us know. We won't do anything terrible. We'll just talk about, you know, that you're okay about it. But a little bit older, the main thing is that you don't let this become the sex education for your children. 
And so in one of the books, um, it's the, the second book I did about girls, and you can tell I was so worried about girls, I had to do two books. Yeah. But the second one is called 10 Things Girls Need Most, and it's a diagnostic book for pinpointing where your girl is at. Um, and we used the, the work of a very good American um, sex educator, a woman who, who Elizabeth, and she said that there are four or five messages that pornography teaches kids about sex that are completely wrong. They're com completely um, f sort of fake messages. Uh, and, and of course, the most obvious one is that girls actually enjoy being um, abused and, and mm. you know, mistreated and slapped around and, and even strangled and things like that. Because in porn, the, the, the actresses portray, oh, they, they love that stuff. And, and so boys, you know, we have many instances, and this is kind of almost a chilling note of, of girls coming with their mums to see a, a, a GP because it, some boy has hurt them. Mm. And, and the boy was just doing what he thought sex was like. Mm. It's not that he was a horrible boy. It's just that he thought that's what you do. And so if we don't sit them down and say, look, real sex is it's really lovely you know it's brilliant and you're going to really love it um <laughs> but trust your own insides as to when you feel first thing you know you'll know when you're ready and and listen to your insides and and you if you don't if you don't feel really ready then don't do it and it's a bit shocking but but girls really need to hear that from their mom or their auntie or someone um, it's great, but it's only great when you when you feel completely comfortable with where, where you are and who you're with. Because um, a lot of girls also, the message they get from porn is, oh, well, we're supposed to be doing it. You know, and I won't be able to keep my boyfriend if I don't, don't do it. And so, yeah, so the, telling them these, these four or five differences that, um, that in real lovemaking, people actually talk to each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And they kind of they're kind of friendly and they're a bit interested in each other, um, and um, th th there's a bit of laughter and a bit of tenderness in there. Um, that, and so that it's 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 really really different. Um, mm. It's it's um, and so yes, I'm a bit embarrassed to talk about all of those points, but but mm. there you, you get the idea. Yeah. So it's a yeah, it's a mixture of saying yes, this is something we want to tell you about. Um, and I think as parents, if you're armed with that list, um, it's, it's, of course, it's embarrassing and, and you prefer not to have to do this. Um, but, but it's amazingly a relief what, once you have. It's just another of the things, you know, don't, don't get run over by a car, you know. Um, don't leave your drink on the, <laughs> on the, unattended on the bar. Mm. And, um, and don't have sex with someone you don't really like and trust. Mm. So there's a lot more inputs that kids are getting nowadays, um, Steve. You know, you talked about anxiety. There's a phenomenal amount more pressure. How can we parent more resilient kids? Okay, now, resilient is not what you might imagine. Um, I have a, um, a friend who was a, um, a journalist and, and worked in most of the horror regions of the world he was a crack journalist the one he, they sent to the worst places and he was very good at that um but eventually he he stopped and he came to live in tasmania and stopped being a journalist and after about six months he absolutely unraveled and disintegrated and and 
the reason was that he had he had never had the chance to process any of those things mm. because what res resilience doesn't come from being tough um if there's a windstorm the, the the big trees blow over and the grass just bends and comes back up the next day so the grass is more resilient and and the, the human equivalent of that is when you're sad you cry and when you're scared you shiver and when you're lonely you go and tell someone you're lonely and you do the things that are that are a, a big warm social mammal needs to to recover uh, if a deer gets injured by a hunter or something like that it goes and it lies in a cool place and it licks the wound for a week or so gives a wound time to heal resilience is about emotional in emotional intelligence more than it is about what we used to think that it was about toughness now you do need to be tough sometimes and you do need to you know get up seven times a night when you've got a sick kid you know when you just don't feel like doing that um, so you'd have to teach your kids to do things that they don't feel like um, but at the same time to have that to say you know when it's over you know we'll, we'll we'll kick up our heels because you know you need to rest as well does that make sense it does and again on my theme of of different generations of parenting in all of that is there a place for tough love? Tim and I were, were pondering before this show about this idea of corporal punishment mm. where, you know, everyone of our generation got whacked as kids and... Um, the wooden spoon. The wooden spoon, the feather duster in my case. <laughs> but the, that immediate tactile correction, um, and of course that's absent and, and I'm by no means advocating that that, that was a good thing. But it, it shifted, hasn't it? And and I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on those sort of 50s dad type tough love uh, aspects of parenting. Yeah, well, see, we have a we have a big problem still with violence in families. Um, you know, one in six women has a violent partner, and um, and one in twenty men has a violent partner. Um, and in same in same sex marriages, there's usually, it's quite a high risk of, of violence. And when they look at the risk factors, if if you were if you were belted as a child or hit as a child, mm. you're three times more likely to hit your wife as an adult. Now, if your dad hits your mum in front of you, then it's three times again. So, you've, so if, if you have a dad who hits the kids and hits his wife, that's a nine right. times risk factor. It almost guarantees that you will be a very violent person. And, and may well end up in jail, but certainly someone who, who bashes people up in their family. And so, so it's very, it's a risky strategy as a parenting strategy. Not everyone turned out as you guys did. Um, my wife had a very violent dad and she can remember being, you know, when our kids were playing up, the impulse was there, sort of suddenly feeling that impulse. Mm. And she was absolutely clear when we first married before we even had children. I don't want to ever be in a family where people hit each other. Um, but, but she had to sort of, it was programmed in. If you've been hit, it's been programmed in. You have to make an absolute commitment. You know, I'll walk out of the room. I'll do anything. When I feel that, 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 that purple that sort of pink rage feeling, I'll walk away. And so, um, if for no other reason, we, it's better to, the tough love is to do the things like, you know, it's, you do the dishes all week, you know, because yep. you let us down, you know. Um, there's plenty of good things that are tough to do that, that are that are kind of make sense. 
yeah. um, and that you have to fix that. You know, you've got to go back to the shop and give back that stuff that you stole. Um, th th there's plenty of things that kids can learn from very well that are, you know, that are, that are very natural and make sense to them. And continuing that theme, what about letting people fail? You mentioned before the boy that forgets his lunch, you know, don't drive uh, 20 kilometres to deliver it to him. Um, where's the, the boundary between setting them up for success but allowing them to fail, do you think, Steve? Well, I think they go hand in hand. And and we have a lot of um, – I've talked to a lot of the big schools around around the, the country and, and they're sort of starting to realise that they got much too wound up in this success thing, yeah. that, that their contribution to the mental health emergency was this achieve, achieve, achieve ethos. Um, they thought the parents wanted it. The parents thought the school wanted it. Um, kids are doing four hours homework a night and it's just insane. And so we're sort of beginning to say, look, some things matter. Um, when it really matters, you give it your all. But some other things, don't, they just don't matter that much. And also it's good to do things even when you crap at them. That's an experience in itself. And and so so getting comfortable with, with you know, you know, I'm, I'm not good at this, but I had a go, is, is far better than just being so wonderful, whatever it is. Hey, if you feel like me, then scream out that you don't give a damn what they say. You're beautiful the way you are. Steve, perhaps we could finish up with um, some words of advice from you on the one or two things that we could do with our sons and the one or two things that we could do with our daughters. I know that we're all challenged at home and no one would profess to be the perfect parent. So for something, uh, for someone that's seeking to just change the dynamic with their son or daughter, what's the one or two things that they could try out? Okay, now I'm never good on recipes or lists. But, but <laughs> yes, I think, it's very I binary, think, isn't it? Yeah, but I think that the, the, the principle, I think, is that I want to go back to the, what I thought was the most important message was that, say if you're a dad of a daughter, um, Professor Bruce Robinson is the mentor of mine. He says you have dad and dad and daughter days and the once a month, something like that, dad and daughter go to a movie or they have a real grown-up meal somewhere um, or they go surfing if that's what she likes. Um, and so that, that she knows because with a girl, Dad is often the self-esteem department. She, she, he's the first opposite-sex person in her world, and her, if, if she experiences him as being interested and having time for her, it's just gold. And so, so for girls, I'd say dad and daughter time is is really something to log log in. Um, with with sons, I think um, it's it's about. Um, being affectionate if you're a mum, because a lot of there are still mums who feel a bit scared of being affectionate with with their sons, or they stop when they're a teenager and things like. Sometimes the son just stops them, and that's fine. But for men listening, rough and tumble play is a really good thing. Um, from as little as you can start, um, on the floor, rumbling around, and and you're having a good time, um, but always keeping it within safe bounds and nobody's hurt. It's not something that you're proving that you're the winner. Mm. Um, and so it's, but it's been found that with kids, boys and girls where dads do rough and tumble, it's another form of affection, 
but it's also a, it's, they learn kind of how to self-regulate because they're learning you can be excited, but you don't poke people in the eye, you know. And 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 so even when you're having fun, you still got executive function. Um, and and they and they learn that by osmosis. Like, you know, when we wrestle with dad, he doesn't hurt us. He, he's he's you know he, he manages it, and we stay within safe bounds. So maybe that there's two recipes for you to take away. Steve, that is awesome. Um, we clearly could have gone on all afternoon, but we've taken a, a bunch of your time already. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us, for your candor, and also for everything you have done over the last gusting four decades um, that, as I said right at the start, helped bring me into manhood and now is helping my efforts to to bring another two humans into adulthood. Here, here. Oh, you're very welcome. And thanks for such a deep and wide-ranging interviews. It's very, very moving to, to have met you. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. I stand outside in the rain. I feel it burn my skin. Or shouldn't it cool me down and not hurt me? I look at the people inside. I want to be like them. Or should it really be so hard for me? And I hate myself for feeling like this Why can't my mind just stop? And no I, I look around And I feel so lost inside Can't I fit in and still be myself? I try to calm myself By slowly breathing in But the air it burns my lungs I'm choking I feel the pain inside But it's so deep they cannot see They're probably thinking bad of me For not trying but I try so hard, why can't they not see?
myself Why can't I feel and still be myself? We love music and the arts and truly believe that these form a key component of resilience and make the world a much more beautiful place. Music played on this podcast can reach over a thousand ears a day, and the incredible artists who gave us permission to use their music on season one have been downloaded tens of thousands of times on Spotify. If you are a musician or band who wants to expose your songs to a global audience in over 100 countries, please get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com.